I'll tell you what, can you guys hear me? Perfect. Nothing soothes nervousness and anxiety like engaging in some worship. That was good. That was really good stuff. Before I start, I just want to say thank you, and, and I think we could all maybe take a second to say thanks to our chapel department, Grant, Stephanie, and Catherine. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's do that too. Um, those three work really, really hard, really thoughtfully, really prayerfully to create an environment, not only in chapel, but campus-wide that's just ripe for growth. And, you know, I think it's, it's just always appropriate to say thanks. So when you see them, say thank you, because so many of the growth that happens is a result of, of their prayers and their thoughtfulness and their work. Um, so let's get going. I know we got lunch coming up, every speaker's dream, speaking to a bunch of college students right before they eat lunch. So uh, I'm excited to speak today. Um, I'm excited to speak for a lot of reasons, mainly because, I mean, I'm, I've dealt with some stuff. I've learned. I've grown. I've, I've kind of lived life. Um, I'm 34. You know, not many people in this room are, are that old. A lot of, you know, 18 to 22s in the room. And over the last decade, uh, it's been really good and it's been really transformative. But at the same time, I'm like just young enough to remember what it was like to sit in chapel as a student. It's, that's, I probably won't be able to remember that much longer, but I, I do. And so I've kind of constructed my talk for college me. You know, what, what, what do I really wish I could have heard or, you know, gleaned or, or whatever word you may use? Um, I've really got three, three hopes. One, that, that you would leave encouraged that your struggles, toils, and feelings aren't limited to you and there's hope for life to the fullest. My second hope is that you leave challenged by how you view the gospel as it relates to every aspect of your life, especially day to day. My third hope is that you leave worshiping because of how awesome the gospel is. So let's get it going. So I, uh, I think I always knew I was an insecure person growing up. Um, I just didn't have the, the vocabulary necessarily, the insight, the understanding to articulate it. But you know how sometimes you, you have these thoughts, you've got these feelings, you've got these emotions, you don't really know what to make of them. And then all of a sudden, maybe you read a book, maybe you hear a talk, maybe it's a podcast, maybe it's a chapel, maybe it's a sermon, maybe it's just a throwaway comment by somebody that you're talking to. And then all of a sudden, everything just kind of crystallizes for you. And it's, it's almost like you get this, this instant clarity, understanding, or insight. It's a beautiful thing. I love when that happens. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at with my own insecurity right now. But growing up as a kid, and even through college, and I would even say early into my coaching career, I just knew that I had this emotion that I felt, and I had these things that I did to hide it. I didn't know what it was, but it was there. Sometimes it kind of caused me to, you know, puff out my chest and act tough. Sometimes it caused me to totally withdraw. Sometimes it pushed me to try too hard or try to force something. My first year as a college coach, as an assistant coach comes to mind, when I just became totally addicted to work, neglected everything else in my life. Um, and sometimes it kept me from trying, trying things at all. You know, as I look back, so many decisions that I've made have been made from a place of insecurity. And even more than the decisions, just, you know how sometimes like life happens and like where you're at right now just kind of spills out? Like when you just react. A lot of times it's conflict. A lot of times it's, you know, when stuff doesn't go necessarily according to plan. I think about those moments so much and it's just, it wasn't good. You know, it was straight up embarrassing at times. Others though, the thing with, you know, insecurities, I don't think other people would have labeled me insecure. You know, because we, we give these different labels to things all the time. So to other people, I was passionate, 
right? Maybe not the most tactful, but passionate, right? Fun-loving, hardworking, driven, a jokester. That's what they would have said. But nobody probably would have said, oh, that guy's, that, guy, that guy's dealing with some insecurity. I bought into the lie for a long time that a good day, a good day was a day where I hid my insecurity well and where I wasn't exposed. And that a good life, a good life was just made up of a bunch of those days. And when I say it out loud, it's like, that's not right. Like, like that sounds so dumb, right? Like, that's not a good life. That sounds terrible. And so on one hand, we recognize immediately with our logical minds that life is supposed to be so much more, especially a life with Jesus, right? But yet, how many of us find ourselves stuck in a place of just trying to hide or manage our insecurity on the daily? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I will. Here's the thing, though. The more I learn about insecurity, the more I realize just how all-consuming yet undercover it is. It's in me and it impacts me so much, but I can go days, weeks, and previous to recently years without recognizing it. But it's been one of the, the few constant companions in my life. And I think, and this is crazy, but I think it's true. I thought about this for a while. I think it's probably had more impact on my, my behavior than any other emotion. And even all that being what it is, the most important thing I think I've learned about my insecurity and even insecurity in general is it's not even the problem. Insecurity is not the problem. It's the fruit. It's the fruit that's produced from the tree of misplaced identity. And take it from an avid youth tree climber. That is not a tree that you want to climb, or let alone build a tree house in. Y'all ever seen the Truman Show? It came out in 1998, all right? So I'm dating myself a little bit here. I love the Truman Show in part because it's kind of like Jim Carrey, before he got weird, like he made some really good movies. Um, but the Truman Show, I mean, The Mask is another favorite, but the Truman Show, let's, I'll rein it in. Um, the Truman Show is this movie about Truman, played by Jim Carrey, whose life is lived in this dome. It's, it's literally this constructed environment by this mastermind producer. And the producer controls everything. He controls the weather. He controls the traffic. He controls every event that Truman experiences throughout his day-to-day. It's a really good movie. Um, he ends up escaping it, spoiler alert. But if you haven't seen it by now, you're not going to watch it, so don't act like you will. Um, but to me, identity is like that mastermind producer. It's like that mastermind producer in the Truman Show. Identity controls everything. It's the basis for how you think, feel, act, etc. Insecurity, you can get good at hiding your insecurity. I got really good, especially once you know what to look for. Identity, not so much. See, identity, the root of our identity grows down into every aspect of our heart. And the manifestations of where we place our identity pop up in every context of our life. You cannot hide where you place your identity. When you live out of misplaced identity, life becomes this endless game of striving. You live your life, you're trying to answer the question, who am I? Your life becomes about living for acceptance, affirmation, and approval of others. You embark on this quest 
It's, maybe that's why we like quest movies so much. I don't know. We're on this quest to prove ourselves, to find ourselves, to fit in, to make it, to protect our reputation, our image, our status, our identity. People, to me, how we view people is the biggest tragedy. People become less human. They're more obstacles to overcome, competition to defeat, or pawns to manipulate in your all-consuming world of maintaining this identity that you've built. Then there's comparison. I, I hate comparison. I hate it. I read this book this spring called The Burden is Light by a pastor named John Tyson. Love this dude. The opening chapter is entirely dedicated to comparison. I would encourage you to read it. It's really good. And I'm not sure I've ever identified with somebody else's words more. I'm going to read one quote. This quote just jumps off the, you know how sometimes a quote just jumps off the page and just punches you right in the face? That's exactly what this quote did to me. Comparison makes it impossible to love deeply in community. As followers of Jesus, we are called to live lives of sacrificial love, but it's impossible to give our hearts and lives away to those whom we must be better in order to determine our worth. Comparison is the enemy of compassion. I would add enemy of deep authentic relationship too, but man, that is a dagger, right? Like, that's tough. It's tough to read because it's like, I do that. You know what I mean? Like, I do that all the time. How many of you have been there, right? Something, say something good happens, maybe it's a sibling, maybe it's a friend, and you literally say the words, I'm so happy for you, right? I mean, how many of us have said, have said those words to somebody at some point in our life when in reality, we're just thinking, I'm not happy for you at all, <laughs> right? Because all you just did was raise the bar that I compare myself to. You just made my life harder. And then flip it, right? You've got a friend who's really struggling with something. This is, to me, it's worse. I guess we're not going to rank. They're both bad. <laughs> Your friend's struggling with something, right? And, you're, and it, deep down inside, you're like, it's about time. It's about time. You messed up. Shoot, I've been messing up long enough. You make me feel good now. You know, like, come on, what is that? When they need us the most, our empathy and our compassion the most, we're, we're borderline celebrating. Who <laughs> That's comparison though, right? It's the ultimate joy vacuum. Makes the bad seem way worse. The good seem not good enough. Great is impossible. Celebrating others' success, that's just the game of charades. And then emphasizing with others and loving and serving, nah. As, as a lot of people would say, younger people, not about that life. You know? Who wants that life though? Like who wants that life? Like I don't. I don't want that life. But when our identity is misplaced and we're living out of that insecurity, comparison always joins that party. That's not a fun party. It's like the tree that you don't want to climb. That's not a party you want to be at. So I know I'm still prone to compare, as we all are. But my hope for myself as well as you is that that comparison can come to serve as an indicator light for the condition of our soul as opposed to the unchecked habit of our heart. But this was me for the better part of a decade. So I had a dream, one dream job ever since I was a little kid. Anybody want to guess what it is? What was my dream job? What do you think? You got to say it louder. 
Coaching. Yeah. I wanted to be a college basketball coach. That's what I wanted to be. I mean, NBA player was my backup plan. But I really, I wanted to be a college basketball coach. And I, I got to become, I mean, specifically I wanted to be a head college basketball coach. And I got it. I got to become a head college basketball coach. I'm 28 years old. And I've got my dream job. Thank you. I'm not 28 years old now, just so everybody knows. But I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was ill-equipped. I didn't expect to be a head coach at 28, but I was. And from that day forward, from that moment when that AD said, do you want the job? And I said, yes. From that second, for the next two and a half years, college basketball coach became who I was. It became my identity. Maybe some of you can relate to how it played out for me. Maybe the, the, the role in your life is different. I wanted so desperately to fully embody successful college basketball coach. I wanted my players to love me, my competition to fear me, anyone on the outside looking in to revere me. If I had a personal mantra during my early coaching years, it would have been prove that you have what it takes. And I, it's like I woke up every single day with that prove what you have what it takes just running through my mind. It overtook everything. And my players so often bore the brunt of that. I look back on some of the interactions that I had, some of the mistakes I made, some of the opportunities I missed. And I'm just feel, I'm filled with regret. Even the stuff I got right, even the good relationships, even the guys I was able to help, it was, it was empty because it was all about doing what I needed to do to feel good about me and get them to just help me win games. And speaking of games, like games are a pretty big part of a coach's life. I don't know if you know how it works, but we coach in a lot of games. I hated games. I hated game days. Like who I was on a game day, just nervous, tight, snappy, just negative. I mean, every negative emotion that you can conjure up, I probably embodied that in some way, shape, or form. I was fearful. I was afraid, right? I was afraid to lose because my identity is on full display for everybody to see during a game. I say everybody to see like every, so many people came to our games, but you know what I'm saying. Like, and if we lost, which we often did, I was a failure. And I wasn't, I didn't just fail at winning that game. I was a failure because I was college basketball coach. That's what I was. All I did was compare money, status, position, winning percentage, recruits, you name it. I did mix up how I compared, though. So I would switch it up, see if you can relate. So I would compare with those who had it better than me, or at least how I perceived to have it better than me until I couldn't take it anymore. Then I would switch it up, and I would just start comparing myself to people that I just thought I was superior than. And then I would pump myself back up. That sounds super healthy, right? I was a prisoner in a cell that I had built myself. And there were major parts of my life that were flat out empty. So fast forward two years, two and a half years. I'm in the middle of my third season. We're actually good. We're actually pretty good. But I'm done. Done. It's Christmas break. I'm miserable. I'm angry. I'm on Indeed.com, like firing up the search. Like I'm, I'm ready to get out. Like that's how bad it got. My dream job, two and a half years in, 
having success, whatever that is, and I am done. Funny story, I still get notifications from Indeed.com when middle management jobs pop up in the Midwest. So if you're looking and you need some advice on some open jobs, I can help you with that. And the thing is, like, I'll always get those. I'll never stop getting those because now I get them, and it's a reminder. It's a reminder of what God's done in my life. But I'm a Christian, right? Like, I'm a Christian, though. I went to private Christian university. I I went to church. I read my Bible. I prayed sometimes. How is it possible that I can walk with the Lord yet make the mistake of misplacing my identity and living a life that's a shell of what it's supposed to be and even engaging in my calling and finding it empty? I'm going to repeat that just because I think that's that might be the one thing that I say all day that maybe catches the most of you, the way the most of you can identify. How can we walk with the Lord, yet make the mistake of misplacing our identity and living a life that's a shell of what it's supposed to be? I'm not saying raise your hands, but I would venture to say that so many of us have been in a place or have been or have major aspects of our life where we're just like, really? Like, that's it? Like, this is it? This is all? Okay. I mean, you you know. uh, There's a rapper that I like named Young Noah. Any Young Noah fans out there? Young Noah? I see you, Jacob Morosco, my man. Um, He's got this song called Closer Now. And there's a a lyric in this song. It says, there's got to be more to this life than to wrestle with a porn addiction. And it's like, yes! (laughs) There is, right? There's so much more to life than just mere toil. I've got a story. I don't know if it's true, but I like the story, so I'm going to tell it. We can all just pretend that it's true. So it's Thanksgiving, all right? It's Thanksgiving. Mom's making the turkey. Little girl is watching her. Right before mom puts the turkey in the oven, she takes a knife and she just cuts off the end of the turkey, like two or three inches. I don't know what you know about cooking turkey, but that is not a step in the turkey cooking process. So the girl is like, Mom, why did you just cut off the end of that turkey? And she goes, you know, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know why I cut off the end of the turkey. I just know my mom always did it, and I learned it from her, so I've just kind of always done it. So you need to go ask Grandma. Okay. Goes and asks her Grandma. Same question. Same response. Grandma, I don't know. I got it from my mom. Go ask her. Go ask great-grandmother. Okay. Little girl goes, ask great-grandmother. You got why do we cut off the turkey? Like, nobody knows. They always said they did it because you did it, you did it, blah, 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 blah. Do you know why? Here's what she says. She said, we used to do that because when I was growing up, we were too poor to afford a proper turkey pan. So we had to cook it in this cookie sheet that was way too small. And the only way we could fit it in the regular pan was to cut off the end. So when I grew up, I always used to do it because it reminded me of where we came from, what we've overcome, what God's done for us, who we are. And it just really helped me to be thankful. That's powerful, right? That's powerful. Only it wasn't. Only it wasn't powerful at all. Little girl, okay, thanks, runs off. But here's the tragedy of that story. As powerful as that tradition could have been, and as great of a story as that tradition could have helped tell, it ultimately became meaningless. Because traditions lose their meaning when they become disconnected from the source and the purpose. And so it can be with how we treat the gospel. 
We can know the gospel, we can accept the gospel, we can engage in a lot of Christian activity, and at the same time completely neglect the gospel. All the things we do, Christian education, Bible study, with your hall, personal quiet time, going to church, it can all become a box that you check or the end of a turkey that gets cut off, but no one really knows why. But all that stuff immediately immediately has power and purpose and becomes identity-shaping and life-giving when it's connected back to the gospel. When it's connected back to this idea that Jesus Christ paid my ultimate debt, a debt that I could never pay on my own behalf. He saved me in a way that I could never save myself. He didn't just throw me a life preserver. He jumped in and pulled me out. He did the work for me. And he didn't do it. He didn't do it. So I could just forget And toil along, living a life that's void of purpose and ruled by insecurity. Because I keep trying to save myself, but I just can't make it happen. Here's what I missed for so long. The gospel isn't the first step in the staircase. The gospel is the whole darn house. You don't move past it. You just continue to discover new depths and applications to your life and different contexts that it can invade and transform. The gospel is meant to completely invade and blow up every single aspect of our lives. There's nothing in your life that the gospel cannot transform. There's no aspect of your life that is immune to the freedom and fulfillment found in the gospel. You know what that is? That's big time. That's big time right there. We can never graduate from the gospel. Coach Simons, my man over there. Baseball coach at Covenant. He's got this saying that he says all the time, and I love it. It says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Yes, I love that. Because we have to, right? Otherwise, we're in danger of allowing all these beautiful things in our life that are meant to draw us deeper into the gospel and shape us in only the way that the gospel can to become merely cutting off the end of the turkey, which is to say, just stuff that we do. Here's what happens when the gospel becomes central to your life on a daily basis. Your identity shifts, and when your identity shifts, your security follows suit. You become less who am I and more whose am I. You become less living for the acceptance, affirmation, and approval of others and more living from the acceptance, affirmation, and approval of the one who created and called you. And that sounds like freedom to me. Thank you. You become less run from sin and more run to Jesus. You become less compare and keep up and more compassion and serve. You become less performance driven and more purpose driven. And at the end of the day, that's what we want, right? We want a life with meaning, a purpose filled life. We want what we do to impact others, to have generational eternal ramifications for the kingdom. The gospel changes how we do life. It changed me personally, my marriage, how I parent, how I approach my profession, how I interact with my players, what I value, what drives me, everything. I went from despising my job to absolutely loving my job, from being empty to being fulfilled, all because I fell back in love with the gospel and it changed my identity. I'm not perfect. No. But I am different. My everything is different, and your everything can be different too. It's not easier. I don't have less problems. I'm not all of a sudden rich. But it's just different, man. It's just different. A good difference. And I don't say that in a boastful way, but I say it confidently. Knowing what the renewed love for the gospel has done in me and will do for literally anyone else in this room. 
So if I'm college me, assuming I'm in chapel, the question that I'm asking is, okay, great, but how? How, right? Like, how do I actually make the gospel central to my life on a daily basis? That's a great question. And I don't think I can answer it other than to say the process of answering that for yourself may just be the answer. One of my favorite Proverbs says, it's the glory of God to conceal things and the glory of kings to seek them out. God understands the value of the search. He invented it. He invented the process. So embrace that process of figuring out what that looks like. But maybe start here. There is literally nothing you could possibly do to make God love you any more than he does right now. And there is nothing you have done ever that made him love you any less. We are all the same in Christ. Equal. Come as you are, not as you want to be. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for these students. I pray that you would invade every aspect of their lives with your gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.